You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Hello, Datages friends and family, and welcome back to Datages. Today is another engaging guest interview in our series on It Takes Credit to Make Money. But today's episode is not just any interview. Not only are we speaking today with one of the top businessmen, educators, and thought leaders in the real estate industry, but it's also an opportunity for me to introduce to all of you my own mentor, Gary Rappaport. Gary and I met at a CEO conference called Escape in Las Vegas over a decade ago now. We were introduced by another great real estate industry leader, Simon Ziff of Ackman Ziff Real Estate Group. After really getting to know Gary both professionally and personally, a few years back, I approached him with a somewhat special and formal request to become my mentor. And I was ecstatic that he agreed. And Gary, you've been a very important role model, confidant, advisor, and friend in my life for years now. So I want to say a sincere public thank you, and I want to welcome you to Datages. Thank you, Chad, very much. I'm looking forward to this podcast. Wonderful. And Gary, I thought I would share one, what I think is kind of a fun story from the very first day that you and I met. We were at this escape conference. And one of the things they did that was really unique, and I'm sure you remember it, is they brought in these CrossFit trainers and threw a group of us that had volunteered into a workout together. And I think when you train with somebody and work out with them, there's some sort of like primal bond that you form with them. I thought that was a really cool way that we got to jumpstart our relationship. Yeah, that's nice to say. I definitely remember that time very much. The only difference was, you know, I'm uh, many years older than you, and you're in excellent condition. And that was something that was very difficult to me. And if anything, it recognized for me that, you know, we all have to have expectations of what's reasonable, what we can do, and what we can't do. But I definitely remember that first time we bonded. Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, I am somewhat of a self-proclaimed fitness junkie. So it's definitely a part of my lifestyle, but you were definitely a trooper. I remember you putting in a great workout, working up a great sweat and having a great time. Yes, thank you. (laughs) So Gary Rappaport, it's not just your name, but it's the name of your real estate organization. It means something, I think, to put your name on an organization And your name has now become synonymous with leadership in our industry. Can you share with us, please, what you've built at Rappaport, how the company operates today, and what really defines Rappaport and sets it apart from other real estate companies? I started this company in 1984. 
I actually came to Washington, D.C. from New York in 1973, and I was fortunate enough to start a small home building company and go into real estate, a sector of our economy that I knew nothing about before my senior year in college. But coming to Washington, I did build homes. And in 1984, after going through the difficult times of inflation of those early 1980s, I ended up in 1984 starting this company, Rappaport, in a shared office space where I like to say I paid for the help that I needed by the quarter hour in one of those early WeWork or Regis spaces. And I built this company up basically one person at a time, almost for 40 years. The company presently is really a shopping center, primarily a shopping center company that offers great services to others as well as shopping centers that I have an ownership interest in. There's 120 of us in the company. We're based in Washington, D.C. We only do business in the states of Virginia, Maryland, and the District of Columbia. And we are presently managing 76 retail properties, 14 million square feet, about $3.5 billion of real estate, about 2,000 tenant leases. And I have an ownership interest in about 36 of those properties, about 36 separate LLCs or partnerships with both friends and family and institutional partners. We also represent about 75 retail tenants in the market. And we also do the first floor leasing on about 120 high-rise buildings, about another 2 million square feet on a commission-based business. And then we are involved and have ownership interest in two apartment buildings that we have built as well in Washington. But primarily, we are one-story, no-basement, retail, grocery-anchored, shopping-centered managers and owners in the Washington metropolitan area. Truly impressive and very diverse platform. And I'd like to maybe compare and contrast my business with yours to help our friends and family here at Datages to kind of see how things can be the same but different in the real estate industry. So you and I are both retail developers, same. You and I both work with major national retail tenants, same. But in my business, we've, as I've shared with our listeners on the podcast, I've really focused on programmatic development, where we work across the country from Alaska to Florida, and we align ourselves with a particular retailer and work with that retailer to build out their program. Whereas you've elected to specialize in a geography, really become an expert in your hometown, broadly defined, and a leader in the region. And then one of the things that I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about is that you've also diversified your company, not just in being an investor in real estate and an owner, but in providing property management services. And I know one of the phenomena that I've seen in the industry is companies that have been successful in building that arm of business. It becomes very complementary to the real estate development and investment business itself. Can you kind of explain that interrelationship between being a real estate owner and operator and then being a property manager? Sure. I think that what I say is the more that people can hear the models of other people in the business, saying that your model could be as successful as mine is fine and correct. But the more one can see of other people's models, the more they can decide how much their personality, their level of risk they're willing to take fits within the model of the person that they're learning from. And so my model is just another model and fortunately has been successful. We are the largest company managing and leasing retail in the Washington metropolitan area. 
But many of the other successful owners of retail in Washington, D.C. do not manage for others or lease for others or offer marketing services or renovation or expansion or any other parts of the business that we offer because they say it's not worth their time. And coming up the way I came up and a lot of one's life, and we'll talk more about that hopefully before we finish about how that opening beginning part of your life sets a lot of your philosophy throughout your life, that importance of safety is why I went into third-party property management and leasing and marketing and offering all these services. These services offer stability. They offer stability when we know we're in a business that has very high highs and very low lows, and one needs to survive, especially when one is a true entrepreneur taking the risk that I take. So what I decided a long time ago, that I was going to manage and lease other properties. It gives me the ability to both have management and leasing and fees in the times when we can't build, when we can't buy, when times are difficult. In times of COVID, as an example, we have 120 people in the company. We did not let anybody go. We did not lower anyone's salary. We protected the real estate, which is what we were supposed to be doing. If we didn't have that third-party management and leasing and those fees, we could not have been able to do that. It also sets the stability within an entrepreneurial company where people need to, of course, they're going to worry if they want to make their career with someone like myself. And what would happen, God forbid, if something happened to me? So what we do is we try to make sure that they know that the Third-party management and leasing and the stability that goes along with that offers them, hopefully, the comfort to be able to decide to make their career at Rappaport. That's such a remarkable statement you made about the stability you've established that through COVID, which was one of the greatest shocks to our country, our world, and certainly to our industry in real estate, and especially when you focus upon retail real estate and the impacts it had during that time when everything came to a halt, For you to be able to maintain that really demonstrates how building out that property management organization has smoothed out the curves within your business and riding through the real estate cycle. You know, my father always told me when I was growing up that real estate is not an opportunity-seeking business. It's a risk management business. And it appears that you've really done a great job of managing that risk and mitigating it. Thank you. Well, one of our key topics for this series, and really the main focus, is real estate finance. You talked about the ownership side of your business and the fact that you own real estate assets with friends, family, and other investors. Your business is one that is truly a great example of success in real estate syndication. Could you define your model for real estate capital and help explain for the Datages friends and family what syndication means as a model and how that works? Sure. Well, you know, all of us, we only have a certain amount of liquidity, no matter what that is. So the question is, how do we use other people's money as well as our own in order to own real estate, whether it's to build or whether it's to buy? And my model is not that I'm buying and selling and buying and selling No, I am buying and hopefully, in almost all cases, owning forever. Real estate is a long-term investment. And while I might be buying value-added properties, I might be building new properties, I am also buying core properties and all have different levels of risk and different levels of return. I started this business May 31st, 1984. And I know that date because that's the date that I bought my first shopping center in Baltimore, Maryland, a 30-year-old property 
where I raised $35,000 from 14 partners. I put in $35,000 and I borrowed half of my $35,000 from one of my partners. And we raised approximately $500,000. I signed on a million dollar loan, the debt on the acquisition loan. And I bought a center that today is 69 years old and we still own it. And so we're buying on the average one center a year. I've been in business now in this company for 40 years and I have 38 properties. So 38 properties might be a billion and a half dollars of real estate, but it's one property a year on the average. It's such a great story of bootstrapping to get started, but then sticking with it. One of the other things that we say in my family a lot is you don't make money doing something once. You make money by doing the same thing over and over and over again. And clearly you've laid out that model and stuck to the model. And I always have Gary Rappaport, little Gary, sitting on my shoulder because you're always advising me at different stages of my career, Chad, focus on long-term ownership. What are you doing in the way that you're structuring the particular deals you're doing right now to set yourself up to own these properties long-term and have that long-term interest? So in this case, it's not do as I say, it's do as I say and as I do. It's great to have that as a model. When I teach, I'm generally teaching 20 and 30-year-olds that are working in businesses that one day have a dream to go out and put a real estate deal together, whether it's in retail, whether it's residential or industrial or office. But the concepts of structuring the deals from the financial side are the same. And so there's two ways I've seen people move across into doing what I'm doing. There are people that are working in businesses like J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Carlisle, and they're learning how to do deals with large institutional investors. And they then leave two or three people and they go into and they start their own business. And they're generally always doing from the very beginning institutional deals. But I didn't start that way. I started from the grassroots, the ground up, that deal in 1984. I've been raising investors on a one-by-one basis that I know personally, not crowdsourcing, not online, but learning and coming through recommendations. And so to me, that is a way that I started with friends and family and eventually moved into more detailed deals as well. But I'm still with a base of hundreds of friends and family, investors and partners of mine. Well, let's spend some time talking about that so that our friends and family can really understand the magnitude of that. From your very first deal, it sounds like you were syndicating with multiple parties. And what I know, but I want to really dig into this from your perspective because you live it, is that when you start managing that many investors, in addition to having a real estate ownership and development business, in addition to having a property management business, you're essentially building an investor management business along with it. And I know that you have a really strong team and some great dedicated people whom I've met that are really focused on that investor management piece of the equation. Let's talk a little bit about that. and Maybe you can share with our friends and family what that takes and what goes into managing those hundreds of investors. When I talk to new potential developers, entrepreneurs that want to do what I'm doing, one of the first things I say is let's talk about your personality. Do you want to have 100 investors in a particular property? I love that part of the business. And so a large part of my responsibility is to make sure 
no matter how small or how large you are as an investor and partner of mine, that you're special to me and always are special. And it takes a lot of time to do that. And yes, I have a very good database system called Juniper to help in the background. I have a person that works full-time only with investors to make sure that everything from a change of an email to a change of a bank account to a copy of a report to someone in their family wanting to get access to the information, all those sort of things that are the day-to-day runnings of hundreds of We have about 500 separate investors and thousands of units throughout these partnerships. But you have to be able to really love that one-on-one relationship because these investors, I used to say to them, you're investing, remember, 50% in the partnership in the property and 50% in Gary Rappaport and the team here at Rappaport. And that investor always says, no, I'm investing 10% in the property and 90% in what you're promising me And I believe and trust you. And it is my responsibility always to make sure these investors know that I'm always there to talk to them. And hopefully they're waiting to invest again with me in that next opportunity. And Gary, I can, as you know, personally attest to what you're saying, that it's certainly not lip service by any means, because I have been an investor in one of your properties. And as you said, it's really about that personal relationship with every investor that you have. And that was very much the case for me because I'm happy to share with our friends and family here that through going through COVID and where my company was positioned, I needed to realign my capital resources as I came out of COVID and was closely examining all of my investments to make sure that I was refocusing on my own business in the way that I needed to. And I came to you and I said, Gary, I'm in a position where I really need to generate some liquidity and I'd like to find a way if I can evolve out of the relationship that I have in this investment. And from the get-go, you said, Chad, I'm here to help you meet your needs. You're one of my investors. I respect your needs ahead of the needs of the partnership. And obviously, I represented a very small percentage of that overall project. But you and I sat down, worked through it, and came up with a very, very fair solution. And I was very, very pleased with that. And as I told you then, and I'm excited to share now, I'm always going to be eager to look for opportunities to invest with you on the basis of that relationship and how you manage your investors, not just manage your properties. Well, thank you, Jen. You know, in the time of COVID, which was the worst time in my career, I've gone through, I think, six recessions But COVID was much different because in the six recessions, sales of tenants went down 10%, 20%, 30%. As we all know, with the closing of the stores during the beginning of COVID, the sales of our stores went down 100%. And I made a decision that relates to my philosophy and basis comes right down to reputation. The responsibilities of a landlord are overseeing the livelihoods of those tenants, especially when they cannot control their own destiny themselves. I decided that I was going to hold on almost every property distributions to my investors. I paid my bank loans. I maintained those properties. But none of my investors are sitting there not being able to make their next monthly mortgage payment on their house if they didn't get a distribution. My investors are primarily there for their long-term retirement or for their children, not for living day to day. But if I could save those dollars and then taking those monies to be able to save as many tenants as possible, 
That was the most important thing to do. And that's what the philosophy that was set through this company. We had over 1,000 negotiations of deferral of rents, abatement of rents during the times of COVID of the 2,000 leases we had. And I'm proud, and I know people here in this company as individuals are proud of what we did and how many lives and how many businesses we saved because of the direction and the philosophy that I set at those terrible times of COVID. I'm sure that it not only meant a lot to all of your tenants, that you helped them weather that storm, but also to your investors, even though, as you said, distributions were suspended, they're coming out the other end, I'm sure, very happy with the staying power that was demonstrated. And I'm sure as well, your lenders on the debt side must have a tremendous amount of respect and appreciation for how well you navigated those times. For sure, especially because we thought we needed certain help at that time, every property. Remember, I'm not sitting here like a real estate investment trust with some massive amount of assets all within one entity. I'm sitting with 76 properties where I control myself 38 and approximately another 15 or 20 that owners of those properties look to me for expertise. And every one of those properties sits with a different type of debt a bank, an insurance company, a CMBS lender, and everyone was a different story. But at the end of the day, we ended up making all our debt service payments. We did not lose any properties. We did not miss any payments. But we surely did not have everything being perfect. And we did go through some of the problems that many others went through at that time as well. It's an amazing story. And you talked about people's motivations for being investors behind Rappaport and your properties and the opportunities you present. I know for me, one of the reasons I was most motivated and appreciative of being one of your investors was the educational component. I used it as an opportunity to have a front row seat into seeing how your company professionally manages the relationship with investors, the reporting that you provide, all of the accounting, the back office side of things. It's truly a remarkable infrastructure. I would encourage anyone that if they're considering building a platform such as the one you've built that has an investor management component, a good way to learn is actually, as I said, becoming an investor in a syndicator and coming along for the ride and having that front row seat. I'm sure that there are many people who have been investors of yours that have gone on and pursued real estate careers of their own and not just been passive investors in real estate over the years as well. Is that the case? Well, of course. I mean, I'm happy for anyone to be an investor that would like to be a partner with me. But more important even than that, as you know, I've been teaching for over 30 years. And I teach about every two or three months at different universities. And most importantly, for the International Council of Shopping Centers, where I've been a trustee since 1998 and was a chairman from 2002 to 2003. I wrote my first book on structuring real estate partnerships in 2010 the second one in 2016. And at this point, we will be printing under the Forbes business book entity. A third edition of this book is coming September. But in teaching my classes, the first thing I do when I start the class and end the class the same way is I always say to anyone in the class, whether it's 25 people like a class at Georgetown University or maybe over 500 people that will be at the class at ICSC in Las Vegas in May, is that Anybody that wants to call me, anybody that wants to meet with me, anybody that wants to have a Zoom call with me on any question at all, I am always available. 
And I end the class the same way. And I'll say it here as well, Chad, and if you want to make sure that people have that ability to know how to contact me, I make that time. And as you know, because we've talked so long for so many years, I set my life into thirds and I have a very large family I'm responsible for. And that's my first third. That's the most important. I have five daughters. I have eight grandchildren and a wonderful wife who I love dearly. And I then say that's my first third. And my second third is the business. I love what I'm doing every day. And I come to work looking forward to meeting people and dealing with people. I tell my kids, if you can get up every day and love your life like I do, whatever you do, none of my children are in the business. They all are raising families. And one's a social worker, one is a teacher, one is an expert in glass blowing and ceramics. I want them to be happy every day and do, hopefully, as I do, looking for that next day in their life is a wonderful day. But that third third is what we're talking about. And I teach and I write books and I talk about how to structure partnerships. And I say, if I can help anyone reach their dreams sooner than they could reach them, then that third of my life is something that's special to me. And that's what I say my dad taught me when I was younger. That's incredible. And how have you managed to successfully carve out that third? I'm sure many people in the audience are thinking to themselves, how could I possibly make time to give back to people around me when I'm trying just to survive and fight my way through to my own personal success? How do you make that happen? You know, first of all, of course, my job is not nine to five. One of my children said to me years ago, Dad, I don't know how you did it. But, you know, you came to every track meet and every choral event and every basketball game. And you were always there in the afternoon and there weren't any dads there, but you were there. And I said, well, I wasn't in everything. But, yes, I came to a lot because I'm very organized and I would know when I'm needing to be somewhere. I would be there and then I would otherwise, you know, go into something else. So when I talk about that third of my life, like anything else, if we can find the time if we need to. And I've just allocated that part of my life. And I'm very satisfied with that third. When I go to the shopping center convention next month in May, I know that I will have at least a half a dozen people that will stop me in the hallway and say, excuse me, excuse me, uh, Mr. Rappaport, you don't remember me. But, you know, 14 years ago, I took your class and here's what I'm doing. I just bought this project, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to say I structured it just like you showed. And I just want to tell you, thank you very much. Nothing makes me happier than to be able to say, thank you for stopping by and saying that to me. And I'm glad that you've been able to do this and are successful at it. That's amazing. And if you think back, can you pinpoint a time when you made this conscious decision to divide your life into the thirds that you described and created the arm of your life that was going to be focused on teaching? You know, it goes back to how you brought up. And my father is who I dedicated my books to, who basically set my philosophy of how to deal with people. My father was a tie manufacturer, undercapitalized, grew up in Brooklyn, New York. My mother as well. Both were born there. I was born there. My father grew up in Brighton Beach and sold ice cream on the beach as a teenager with this big metal thing on his back with dry ice and had to give the money to the house. And my mother grew up in Bensonhurst and then they moved out when I was two years to Long Island and lived in a house for 48 years. And the only loan he had in his life was a 30-year mortgage on his house. And I'm the first college graduate in my family. 
But I remember sitting in a small factory. I don't want to call it a factory, like a second story in some old building in Brooklyn where there were peace workers making ties. And I'm a teenager. And he said to me things like, don't you ever think that you're any different than anyone else sitting here, anyone else working. I don't know why I'm lucky enough to be here. And everything he always talked about as I grew up was the importance of recognizing that everybody is the same. And the glass is always half full for me. No matter what the problems are, it's always half full. So he set that for me. And so when I started, even running my first business here in 1973, I was a home builder. I always had people working as laborers and as interns, as people that wanted to learn the business. And I was always a teacher from the beginning. I'm a finance person more than anything else. I love when somebody wishes to learn. And so I would say I've been teaching people whatever I've learned myself since the time I first got out of college in 1971, if not before. That's fantastic. It sounds like clearly your upbringing and the example set by your father really charted your course, set your compass, and and created your value system. You mentioned earlier that you really didn't discover real estate as a field until late in your college career. Did you have other mentors or examples along the way that helped you discover real estate and helped guide you in your early professional years? I graduated Syracuse in 1971. I was 21 years old, and my first wife, I was married 10 years. I was not married then for 15, and now I'm married for coming on 26. And everyone in my family gets along. My wife, my ex-wife, all my kids, we all travel together, and we're all best of friends. And I hope that it will continue, you know, when I'm no longer on this earth. And I think, hopefully, to the best of my ability, I've structured that that will hopefully continue to occur. But my wife's family was in the real estate business. They were retailers and they were shopping center owners. And in meeting my first wife and then my ex-father-in-law at that time, I ended up having my first experience with real estate. I was living in a house in one of those Levittown 6,000 square foot lots, not 6,000 square foot houses, but I had never met anyone in the business before. But I was a finance major and I thought I was going to go in one way into learning how to make ties and sweaters and shirts as my father taught me, whether in his business or some other business. But when the opportunity presented itself for real estate and what I had read and wanted so much to be part of, I had an opportunity to do that. And when my ex-father-in-law said, come to Washington, I'd like my only daughter to live here. It was a difficult decision because, of course, I loved my parents and the business I was in. But I decided to move, but not to move into a business that was his but only if I started something myself. And I did start that business myself with another partner back in 1973 and built a few hundred homes from 1973 to 1981 and built up a lot of relationships with bankers and people here in Washington, D.C. until 1981 when I decided to go and change my model from home building into long-term ownership of real estate through commercial real estate and, of course, shopping centers. It's a very interesting connection of the dots along the way, but I can see it unfolding as you described. It's an incredible pathway. Well, you know, Chad, if I might add, in 1981, if we remember, people say today, this is the worst inflation in 40 years. Of course, most people that I teach don't understand because they weren't 
here 40 years ago, or surely we're not in business 40 years ago. But in 1981, Prime was 20%. I was a home builder borrowing at 22%. 30-year fixed rate mortgages on homes were 13.5%, and nobody could afford to buy a house. And I said, this model doesn't work. I'm not building any long-term assets. I'm selling everything that I'm building. I'm trying to find the next more expensive piece of ground. And I said, this makes no sense. I know every line item of cost, but I can't control the most important line item, interest. And I am getting out of this business. And I got out of the home building business and said, I'm going to get and learn more about the commercial business, and I'm going to take classes in syndication. I'm going to take classes, and I'm going to talk to everybody that I can talk to, and there's no question that's a stupid question. I am going to ask and learn how does one leverage the money they have to get involved in real estate that could be owned long-term, and I changed my model and went from home building into commercial real estate retail business. And so I'll ask and learn now on behalf of our friends and family here, what were the lessons that you took from those inflationary periods in the early 80s that you are starting to now apply in this economy as we go from the lowest interest rates in mankind's history to returning to more normalcy, which to all of the rest of us look like high interest rates, but by comparison, the numbers you were talking about are still minuscule. Well, that comes back to one of the things we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, the question of what model you're going to set. The fear that I would have been out of business in 1981 if I didn't have strong support behind me said to me going forward that if I wanted to structure a new model, I needed it to be stable. And stable means not just when times are good, because we all know If it was every six years or eight years or 10 years, we're going to hit some really bad times. And the people that I've seen that have not survived are the ones that are only developers that are saying, if I don't do another deal next year or the following year, I can't pay the overhead. I can't survive. And I said, I could run through those times, but I've got a plan for them ahead of time. So I am going to take my relationships my expertise in a certain area, and I am going to spend my time not every day looking for the next opportunity, but I'm going to talk to people that own existing centers. I'm going to ask them and tell them why they should hire me to manage or lease their properties. I'm going to take my time to stabilize a business, even if it's not as productive as going out there and trying to do another deal, but I'm going to be ready And so what's happened, fortunately, over a lifetime is I've had some difficult times. Every time there's a recession, I want to be an opportunity buyer. Majority of the times, not this time, fortunately, but earlier in my career, most of the bad times, I've been a distressed seller. And I have lost properties. And everything isn't perfect. By the end of the day, I've survived. And I've survived in a very risky business where I've taken great risk. When I talk about defining when I teach about being an entrepreneur, I say there's really different parts to it. You need to have the personality of such that you can live with the stress of personal loans and having to raise money and putting deals together and having the expertise in the area that you wish to be able to put a deal together, whether it's retail or some other sector of real estate. 
I have lived a life that I have personally signed for liabilities greater than my assets from the time I was 23 to the time I was 55. And I'm now turning 73. But I'm sitting here, I could just tell you that I am personally signing for a very large amount of liabilities. And the reason is my model, whether it's right or wrong, is that every property is in a separate LLC. There is no cross-collateralization. There is no deck of cards. I can lose a property. I can have my investors lose all their money, but I don't go out of business. It's not everything being lost. It was all together in one entity or one real estate investment trust. So that's the positive side. But the negative side is every property stands on its own and every loan stands on its own. And when you go out and build something or you want to buy something and you need to sign on a loan or you're required to, the assets are only within that one LLC. So if you have a completion guarantee or a bank wants that, they want it from you personally. And you have to decide if you want to accept those risks. I could tell you that I don't, even at my age, coming up to 73 in June, there are nights that I get up in the middle of the night. I'm in a cold sweat. It's three o'clock in the morning. I can't sleep. I get up. I take a shower. I get dressed. I go to work. And I don't want to have that stress. But in return for that, I love what I'm doing. And I don't want to stop. I like to say that I'm not a deal junkie. I don't buy and sell. I'm only doing one deal a year. But no matter how lows the low are, when they're low, the highs are higher than the lows are low. And no matter how low it is when I say, I don't know if I want to do this again, when things change and now it's going back up again, I want to do it again. I love the story you tell about the night sweats. There's nothing more illustrative than the motivating power of personal recourse in real estate than the night sweats. I think every real estate conference I go to when you're hearing a panel discussion, somebody will ask someone on the panel, well, what's keeping you up at night? And you start to think that none of us in the real estate industry actually sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, The kind of questions I'm getting now that are different than the past is now I'll go to an investor today and they'll say two things to me, a new investor. And new investors don't just come out of the woodwork. They come from a brother, a sister, a friend. Yeah, referral relationship, absolutely. But now I have a new investor and they're learning about me. And the two questions they ask are, what happens to my investment if you die tomorrow, Gary? Sometimes they say it a little nicer. Sometimes they say it not as nice, but it's the same thing. What happens if you die tomorrow, Gary? And two is they say, if you don't sell, how do I ever get out? And those are good questions. And in over 40 years, we have structured answers to that that work very well. The first one is that in the company here, the top four people in the company each have an ownership in real estate. And that ownership is part of their package. They get a salary, a bonus, a real carrot in the ownership of real estate. And they have a signed agreement that says that if I can't work anymore, do not wish to work anymore, or I'm no longer on this earth, they from the estate, if I'm no longer on this earth, can sign and purchase the management agreement on a 10-year note at the lowest interest rate the government allows. So in theory, but hopefully in reality, 
they can buy the management company without having to put any cash in. What that really does is it stabilizes and gives them security that their salary and bonus will always be there. So they can make their career with me. And it's worked well. Their interests are not as great as mine, but I'm the only one that signs. And so the question that always comes down is you as an individual, that's when, when I talk to people, when I teach, the question is, where do you want to be? Do you want to take the risk like I do for the big carrot, but the big loss, if it doesn't succeed, of losing everything, your house, your car, everything that you've built up in your career? But more important is that what I do is not the end all to end all for everybody. It might be for me. It's what gives you the majority or the maximum number of days in your life that you're happy. So when I say the same thing on my children, I say, do you want to be in a company where you have an ownership interest in real estate, but you're not signing on loans, but you're getting something for part of your package? Do you want to work in a large real estate investment trust and get stock options and end up owning part of a large real estate investment trust, even though it's a small amount? What you have to decide as an entrepreneur is what level of risk and return fits your personality. My father could never think when he would listen to what I was borrowing, he could never understand it because he lived through the depression. He was born in 1921. He was afraid of having a roof over his house and food on the table. So he could never borrow the money that I could. But I always felt that you could always get another job. I would always be able to survive. I would never starve. You know, I always like to say that, you know, there are no debtors prisons out there. They don't hang you up by your thumbs. All you can do is lose everything you have and then you'll start again or you'll go to get some other job. And so my philosophy all my life has been that I'm willing to take that risk because I want that return. Yeah, and for developers like you and me, Gary, if we're not in debt, we're not doing our job. For sure. And the other answer, what I said is, well, how do people leave if we don't sell? And the answer there is there is no guarantee. Every one of my partnerships, we have all the rights. People rely on us, but we make the decisions. We sign the leases. We make the budgets. We spend the money. We do the refinancing. But you can't be in this business unless you look across at everyone and say, in good or bad times, we will always value the property. There will never be a discounted value for an illiquid investment. And we will find someone or we will buy ourselves your interest. And that has been there my entire career. In times of COVID, remember, my investors are long-term investors. I had one investor that needed to sell. I bought their interest. But more importantly, it's got to be fair because that's your reputation out there in the community. I am buying about four or five shares of people's investments from the 1980s and maybe from the 1990s, where the share is now owned by the children of my original investors. And they maybe need to have money to buy a house or send their kids to college or even their children to buy a house. Or maybe they want more liquidity than they ever had when their parents were alive. Whatever the reason. Some of them have stayed and continue to invest with me, and some of them have decided to sell their interest. That's fine. And that's just part of the model that works so well. 
And I think that's such an important message to those of our friends and family who are listening now and are thinking about how can I raise capital and how do I work with investors. To boil down what you said, you're offering the safety, the security, the certainty, the guarantees that you're there for your investors and then giving them that consideration, that respect, and that flexibility of understanding their personal needs. But the one thing you never give your investors is control. You keep the control of yourself because if you don't, you can't perform your job. And as the host of this podcast, it's time for me to do my job. I look at the clock and we've already hit the 45-minute mark, Gary. Time flies when you have a great guest. Let's take a pause here and save the rest of our discussion for the next episode when we'll get into how to build a successful real estate investment organization uh, and what it takes to work with partners and with family in the real estate business. And we'll talk at more length about family structures and your leadership in a family setting, which is the first third of your life, as you said earlier. And until then, I say to our dadages friends and family, remember, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Dadages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit dadages.com and subscribe to the Dadages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.